welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship gathering at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Please sit back and enjoy our teaching time now with lead pastor, John Buckley. of you that weren't here a couple weeks ago when I preached on the uh, parable of the minus, which was in chap- from chapter 19, I encourage you to go back online and listen to that if you want to kind of see a little bit of uh, the background there, but that was only a chapter away. Now, a lot's happened, though, since we had that story. Uh, if you remember, if you weren't here, I'll uh, give you brand new information. If you were, hopefully you remember, but last time we did it, Jesus was coming into Jerusalem for the very last time. This is the, 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 uh, the end of his earthly life is coming. He knows that. The disciples still don't get that. But he knows that he's got a short period of time to be able to reinforce some of the principles that have been shared before and lessons that have been taught before to the people that he had ministered to and to the people that, he had, sur- that had surrounded him. And he had lots of people that had surrounded him throughout his ministry. Not only did he have his disciples, but he had the curious onlookers. The ones that were kind of following is, is, so to speak, the traveling circus. Like, what will Jesus do today? You had those that were following Jesus just so they could think of what they could get out of this. They heard about, or perhaps they were there. Jesus broke the bread and the fishes and fed the thousands that were there. Maybe some of them were in both times that that happened. Uh, And and you, you get this group of people that were there for what they could get out of Jesus, so to speak, tangibly, not spiritually. And then you had the group that followed him around constantly looking for some way that they could nail him, that they could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that these crowds would then turn on Jesus because he was guilty. That's what they were hoping to prove there. And all these folks were following Jesus along throughout the course of his life, and now as we're coming down to this point where his ultimate death is gonna take place soon, Jesus says a few things that he wants to make sure that everybody understands. Now, when we were in chapter 19, we shared about the fact that we had this parable that we went over with you of the 10 minus. And what that led us into is from that, that, that uh, opportunity there, and from there, you see that Jesus goes into the temple, and Brian preached on this over our Easter, uh, was it Easter? I guess our Christmas, uh, I guess it was Easter, through Easter, and Brian took time to preach about how the, the message of Jesus going in and cleaning out the, the temple, because you had these gentlemen, I don't know if we should call them that, these men that were there trying to take advantage of the people by charging them outlandish amounts of money, and taking advantage of their spiritual desire to be able to make a sacrifice before the Lord, and they were dirtying it and moneying it into becoming just a a, a series of commercial trades that took place. So he wiped out, so to speak, that, that opportunity for them to make money in that way, and these religious leaders now, they're not just mad, they are fire in their eyes. And then we see, as you go into the first part of chapter 20, right before our parable, that Jesus makes sure that everybody that he's talking to there understands one thing and one thing very definitively, and that's this, that the authority of Jesus is what matters most in this situation. That he had been given authority to do these things, and they had a choice, accept and realize that Jesus was there as truly the Son of God, or reject that, but also realizing this, there are repercussions with both choices. 
So the authority of Jesus is laid out. And it's in that little snippet of story that we come here to this parable of the evil farmers or wicked tenants, as it says in many of the Bibles there. And I want to remind you as we get into this, first of all, that last time in Luke 19, the parable we shared was only in Luke 19. This parable, if you want to go for further reference, you'll also find in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46, and also Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. And I always like reading the other ones because they give some extra flavor and coloring to what takes place. And I'll be referencing them a couple of times during our opportunity with this parable. Now remember, what is a parable? A parable is a biblical truth that's wrapped in a story. A biblical truth wrapped in a story. And so as we dig into this, let's just read over the passage of Scripture, and then we'll unpack this parable and apply it to our lives today. In verse number 9 of Luke chapter 20, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and lent it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And so he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I know, I got it, so to speak. I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus asked. He'll come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls in the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It will crush him. And then we see that that is taken from Psalm chapter 118, which we'll go back to in a minute. It will crush him. Now, I want to talk about the story here a little bit which the crux of the story is in verses 9 to 16. Now, we need to understand first of all what the vineyard is and unpack what some of these people are in just a minute. Now, a vineyard, when it was planted, which was not uncommon for a landlord to go and to plant a vineyard, you'll see some of the parts of the vineyard in, in Mark and Matthew that lay it out, but he puts a wine press in there, he puts a wall around it, a tower, he sets it all up for prosperity, which landlords would do. They'd give the tenants everything they needed that they might be able to make money and then the, the, the owner of the vineyard would then get a, pro, a per, part of the proceeds, a percentage that would be his own. And that was the deal that usually lasted for decades sometimes. Now, interestingly enough, in this story, the, the people of Israel are really, excuse me, the vineyard is the people of Israel. And you'll see that Jesus, refer, excuse me, that in the Old Testament, God refers to the Israelites many times as a vineyard. In fact, a few passages, if you want to look them up later, is Psalm chapter 80, verses 8 to 16, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, and Jeremiah chapter 2, and verse 21. 
And vineyards, when you planted them, weren't like some of the things we plant where you plant it during one season and then you get a harvest during another one. If you plant tomato plants, you don't have to wait a year to get tomatoes. Although it'd be cool to see red tomatoes in the middle of a snowstorm, wouldn't it? Just kind of hanging out there, you know? Watermelon, you, you plant it and it grows within a season. But vineyards are a little different. Vineyards take about five years before you get a good harvest from them. And the Israelites, God had basically said, I've given you all this time, I've set you up, you are ready to be people of God that I have determined that you should be, and what are you going to do with that? And in essence, what you've done from that is the majority of you have rejected me, the Messiah, the Son of God, as the one who's come to save you from your sins. And that's who we know as the owner of the vineyard, which is God. He's the one that founded the nation of Israel, and he gave them all of the resources that they needed in order to be successful. So who are the evil farmers then in the story? The evil farmers in the story are the religious leaders in particular. Some believe it was actually the whole nation of Israel because of the, the condemnation that took place. He's out there about them being crushed, and we know that in A.D. 70, the whole area of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, was wiped out in a massive way, and basically, majority, 90% of the people were taken out of the land. But we know specifically, at least the religious leaders, but possibly he's dealing with the whole nation of Israel being those evil farmers or those wicked tenants that are there. And then we see these messengers, right? And you'll notice that in this one, it talks about three, and you might say, wait a minute, I'm going to read in Mark and Matthew, and there's more than three lists. The concept isn't a number. The concept is that he constantly sent different representatives of the, the land that they might be able to give a portion of those resources back to God. And what that represents is all the Old Testament messengers that went to give the message of repentance to the nation of Israel. And if you don't know who they are, then just take some time to read the last part of the Old Testament, and you're going to get a whole lot of those minor prophets, as we call them, and even some major ones that over and over again, in, in a much smaller period of time than I think we realize, went Isaiah and Jeremiah and Haggai and Zephaniah, and a lot of those went, and they gave the message of repent. You need to turn back to God, Israel. And we know it happened many times. Yes, you're right. God, we, we ask for your forgiveness. We turn ourselves over to you. And then soon after, what happened? They're right back at it, building their idols, worshiping their false gods. So these messengers were mistreated, as it is in the story, over and over again. And we know from any of the stories that the Old Testament prophets we read about are ones that we know about, but do we realize there was other ones along the way? Some were killed. Many were beaten. Often they were mistreated. Frequently socially ostracized. Oftentimes looked at as lunatics. And that was the Old Testament prophets there that are messengers. Which brings us to some really big stuff here. And it's the big biblical truth, so to speak, of this passage. Look with me, please, to verse number 17. Now, right before we dig into that, remember what happens after, well, let, in fact, let's jump up to verse number uh, 14. But when the tenants saw him, which is the son, they said, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Now, who was that stone that we're gonna read about, who is also the son who should be the one to get the inheritance is none other than Jesus Christ himself. The landowner's son is Christ. 
And when he, you see the way that he was treated by the religious rulers and the fact that he was killed, we know that's exactly what's going to happen soon. And Jesus knows that. He knows that he's the one that's going to be killed. And it's interesting to see the response of the people there in this like, like sh- amazement, like, man, that would be so wrong that those people would come and do that to him. And that the last thing they would do is they would kill the, the heir of the, of, of the, of the uh, um, vineyard because they know that the vineyard owner is going to come down and he's going to demand of their, their, them to come out of there. If not, he'll kill them. They'll be wiped out. And Matthew even says that the religious leaders even chime in on that. Yeah, this is wrong. It reminds me, back at the story of David, when he had had Uriah killed so that he could cover up his sin with Bathsheba and her pregnancy, and God sent Nathan the prophet. And Nathan told a story, a biblical truth wrapped in a story. He said, King, I gotta tell you a story i got to tell you something's going on. I need your advice on this. David said, shoot, Nathan. By the way, David wasn't used to Nathan asking him for advice, so I'm sure he thought this was a really good opportunity. Nathan must finally be respecting me. And he goes, yeah, there's this one king who had hundreds of sheep. And he had neighbor only had one sheep, and that sheep was like a family member. They brought him into the house. He sat up at the table and ate with them. I mean, he was, he was part of the family there. Maybe he didn't sit at the table, but you get the concept. Very special to them. He was a family member, not just a sheep out in the pasture. And this rich landowner, he's gonna have a party because he has people coming in to visit him and rather than take any of the sheep that he has, he forcibly removes his neighbor's sheep, their pet, their family member, and brings it over and slaughters it so that his guests can be fed. And Nathan, as he says that to David, sees David's reaction almost immediately. Sees the pulses in his forehead start to pop out. The veins in his forehead start to pop out. Sees the redness in his face, the clenching of his fist. And David goes, there is no way that that guy's getting away from that. We will, and he lets out this litany of things that are going to happen to destroy that neighbor. And I almost think that Nathan just let him rant for a little bit. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know that Nathan comes to a point where he points his bony finger back at David and says, well, you know what, David? You're that landowner. And David was crushed by that and realized the weight of the sin that he had committed against God. That was his response. And by the way, that was Christ's desire that the response would be to this story, this parable here. He was hoping that with another opportunity that these Religious leaders, these guys that knew the Old Testament, they knew the things that were laid out, they could see things that were being fulfilled, but they were so corrupted by the power that they had and the religious rules that they'd added on to the law and and, and the, the arrogancy of who they were that they would not see past their pride and rejected Christ as Messiah, even though it was laid out very clearly in the Old Testament. And so as Jesus wraps up this and sees, again, this response by the crowd, we see what verse 17 says. But he looked directly at them and said this, what then is this written? Again, this is taken from Psalm 118 and verse 22. You'll find Jesus oftentimes uses the law to convict, and he does that again here, or the Old Testament to convict. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You all have rejected. The cornerstone was key, especially in those days, as the lines and the significance and symmetry of it was so important in placement as the whole rest of the building rested in part on that cornerstone. It was what was built on, and you guys are not even recognizing the value of the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ, and you're rejecting him. If we were to read the second verse, Psalm 118, verse 23, we'd read this as well, which I think is pertinent. You'll see this one also referenced in Matthew and Mark. But he says this, verse 23. So after he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become their cornerstone, then he says this. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Folks, if we can acknowledge the fact that we need Christ, that he is the cornerstone. And we need him not only to save us, but we need him daily to empower us and to guide us and to direct us. That's marvelous in our eyes. And for those of you here that have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I hope that we haven't lost the awe of who Jesus really is in our lives. I hope that you didn't come today to fulfill a religious obligation, that you gave money in the offering plate or online to fulfill a religious obligation, that you don't stay for second hour to, to fulfill a spiritual church obligation. You don't serve just so you can fulfill that religious spiritual obligation, that we do all this realizing marvelous is what God's done, and he's placed us in this body, and that should excite us we shouldn't endure being here, but be excited about being here on this earth and in this body to be able to do the things he's called us to do. But then Jesus puts the final piece, and this is what sends the religious leaders over the top. And he says in verse 18, everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And in that moment, what they recognize is that he was talking about him being that stone and them being the ones that were being crushed. And what was their response to that? Their response to that was that they, you'll see in Matthew and Mark, that they gathered together and they started to plot, but they were fearful of what the people would say, which you see oftentimes, but they started to plot again that we have got to remove this man from the scene. We've got to get rid of this Jesus. Who is the stone? Christ is the stone. Now who stumbles over the stone? The religious leaders stumble over the stone. They had a furious response. I encourage you as we wrap up things that you'd look at this story and the one thing I always do when I read a story is I go, are there any characters in this story that strike home with me? I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to see the bad guys in the story and think, how dare they do that to my Jesus or to my God until I realize the things that I do to my Jesus and to my God. So before we're quick to judge, first ourselves before others, please do that. Because our usual one is to be quick to judge others first and possibly me. Do you strike a chord with any of these characters in the story?
And then I have just a few questions I want you to chew on today. Who is Jesus to you? Don't quickly answer that, but chew on it. Who is Jesus to you? I grew up in a home where Jesus was used as a curse word often. And I was in a diverse world because when I got saved in fourth grade and I heard the vernacular of Jesus used in a, in a series of reverential ways and I would go back home and I would see it used in, in, a, in a ways of frustration and anger towards other people, it was a very confusing situation because they were defining Jesus in two different ways in the world in which I lived. The scripture is the only way that we need to look to define Jesus. And the scriptures say that Jesus is the son of God who came to this earth and lived a sinless life and died a horrifically cruel death for our redemption, was buried and rose again for our redemption so that we might have life eternal. And if anyone will acknowledge that they're a sinner and come to Christ and ask him to forgive them of their sins, they become a child of God. That's the simplicity of the gospel. And if Jesus is not your savior, then I encourage you today to make him your savior. Who is Jesus to you? But secondly, I want you to chew on this. What are you doing with Jesus? It's a silly question, Pastor John, but is it really? Because again, I think we can get into this rut of things where Jesus becomes something we do, not the person that lives in us in the form of the Holy Spirit. So what are we doing with Jesus? If you're a Christian, you know Christ Jesus is your savior, that's awesome and that's wonderful. It's fantastic. But you know he has a plan for you. And he wants you to make him the priority of your life. That day by day you live in a way that would bring pleasure to him. You get in the word, you pray. You, you, you look for opportunities to be able to be used by him to impact others. Because if you didn't think about Jesus all week till this morning, when you remembered you had to bring a snack for fellowship time, or you had to make sure, that's why I'm dressing differently, or the clock's gotta be set at a different time, or okay everyone, let's act like we're all happy. But do you think about Jesus on Monday? And Tuesday? What about hump day, Wednesday? Yes, Jesus, thank you, it's the middle of the week. We're almost there. Yeah, I think of him. See, Jesus, if he's your savior, is intended to be a part of the fiber and fabric of your life. And the word of God lets us know ways that we should be doing that. So the question is, are we doing that? Because that will answer then what you're really doing with Jesus. When I get home, I have a place I put my keys. There's a reason for that. In my home, keys disappear quickly. People put keys places and think they're gonna stay there, which is often on the island in our house, and that's where we use everything to eat and do everything. It's the central part of our house as you walk in. So people frequently ask, where are my keys? And they are gonna get stuck somewhere because they don't belong on the island. So I have hiding spots I put things places. Now, as I get older, there's a problem with that. I have to remember my hiding places. I can't wait till I get glasses and forget them in the top of my head, that'll be fun. And I don't want you to take Jesus when you get home today and put him in the spot you drop your keys until next Sunday. What are you doing with Jesus? 
And I often tell our elders this. When we get into different discussions and debates about stuff, I always bring them back and I say, guys, what really matters are these two core things. This is what we're all about as a church. This is what we're all about as Christians. What are we doing to share the gospel and what are we doing to make disciples? If we mess up in other areas, if we get these two right on the right theological foundation, obviously, we're gonna be fine. So my last question for you today is, how are you sharing Jesus with others? This world, more than ever before, needs people who are willing to open their mouths, who have a relationship with Christ, and tell them Jesus is. I don't know what to say, Pastor John. Just tell them what Jesus has done for you. Well, what if I can't answer a question? Then you say, let me look into that and I'll get back to you. Let's not allow fear or lack of education to stop us from sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. This world needs Jesus, folks. They don't need all the government programs. They don't need to just have better neighborhoods and better schools. Those are all bonuses. What they need is Jesus Christ as their Savior. And God's plan was to use mankind to be the ones to share that message. So pray today that the fear that you live in of what you'll say and how it'll be received and the the, the, the scorn that the devil puts on you is if you don't have enough answers to be shed away so that you can be focused on sharing the gospel with the people that are around you. Pastor John, I don't know who to share with. Then pray this. Lord, help me to come into contact with somebody that you want me to share the gospel with. Now, when you pray that, I guarantee you, you're gonna see things happen in a good way. How are you sharing Jesus with others? See, the religious rulers, they rejected the cornerstone. I'm encouraging you today, I'm begging you today, would you please accept Christ as your Savior? And the natural response for Christians is to say this, well, at least I'm not the farmers, but we were. We were. And he saved us. So let's live like servants of the King of Kings rather than serving our own agenda in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today that you would help us as we chew on this parable, God. And as you desperately wanted the religious rulers to recognize that your son was the Messiah, the savior of mankind, that they would do that. And we do know, Lord, that some throughout the course of Acts even came to know your son as savior, but many rejected. Lord, I pray for anyone here that's, that's here today that's never come to that point where they've personally made that decision to accept that gift. I pray that today would be the day. Help them to know I would love nothing more than to sit and chat with them about what your word says about how they can know you. And Lord, I pray for us as Christians. We, Lord, get so judgmental. And we get arrogant in our own spots. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to make your son an active part of our daily lives and not something we do like we do with our keys where we put them somewhere after Sunday and hope we remember where we left it the following week. Help us to be vibrant disciples of you, Lord. In your precious name, amen.